This is an ABC podcast. It's like fishing. So you attach a, a little vial to a plankton net and you lower it into a bore and then you pull that up. So you're literally using a fishing rod that looks very silly. <laughs> and the animals are normally so tiny that you only see them once you've put your sample of water under the microscope. Time to travel underground. I'm Ann Jones and this is Off Track. And we started our journey underground last week with creatures that sometimes crawl out from underground, cave crickets. And then we moved to amazing arachnids, which live about two to five metres below the surface. They're not spiders, they're not crickets, but sprickets. And today we go even deeper towards the Earth's core to discover what has been swimming beneath the surface for millions of years. We just never knew about it. The Nullarbor is just a gorgeous part of Australia that really spans thousands of square kilometres, not only of desert, but of something much more precious under the ground, and that's water. Perry Beasley Hall is a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Adelaide on the land of the Ghana people. The Nullarbor is actually home to many, many calcrete aquifers, and these are essentially just bubbles of water under the ground that contain potential drinking water for humans, and they've existed for millions and millions of years, as far as we know. They actually house some really amazing species that can occur nowhere else in Australia. So. These aquifers are, I guess we can think of them as underground islands, and they tend to house some really strange looking subterranean animals that have no eyes, no pigment. They've been stuck in these environments for millions and millions of years and can't escape. And so they've evolved some really interesting adaptations to living a life entirely in the dark. And that's completely apart from the beauty that is the Nullarbor above ground. So these underground bubbles of water, what's the scale of them? I wish we knew. So at this stage, we tend to assume that they're kind of, you know, hundreds and hundreds of kilometres in length. Um, But we really don't know how deep they are or exactly how wide they are precisely because they're blocked off from the surface of the earth. And really the main way that we can look into these environments is using existing boreholes that have been set up by mining companies, for instance, And it's within these almost unknowable sealed-off crannies below some of the driest country we have on this continent that an amazing cohort of tiny creatures live in isolation from the surface, like subterranean diving beetles. Yes, underground swimming beetles. How did they get there? Yeah, so at the moment what we're assuming is that these aquifers are the leftovers of river systems that used to exist above ground in these environments. So Australia used to be much greener and wetter in its centre, say 20, 30 million years ago. And these beetles and other animals that now occupy these aquifers would have lived in these rivers. But eventually the rivers would have dried up. So these animals are extremely small in some instances and they would have been drawn down with this water into the water table underground through, for example, interstitial spaces uh, between gravel. And that's part of the reason that they now can't escape because they're just so small that they have no way of 
crawling back out again, for instance. There's just no access to the outside world. So you said they're tiny. How big are these subterranean diving beetles? Well, we would consider five millimetres in length to be large, if that gives you any indication. They're very, very small and essentially just look like a little grain of rice zooming around if you do happen to pull them out of the aquifer and actually take a look at one. (laughs) And they actually look pretty weird and wonderful, some of them, because we think that some of the evolutionary constraints that would have been previously on them living above ground have been relaxed once they've entered this new environment. So a lot of them have, for example, tiny bodies and huge heads or the other way around, and they can look quite fantastic and weird once you look at them under a microscope. But how do you even get your hands on one of them to look at them? Because they live underground, almost entirely sealed off from the surface. When I talk to people about this, I think they tend to assume that we have a really high-tech way of doing that. But essentially, if we go to one of these aquifers that does have a borehole, which is just a PVC pipe in the ground, really... We can then put down a little bit of fishing line with a collection vial, pop it down, let it fill with water and pull it back up. And that's really all there is to it. And hope that there's tiny little grains of rice zooming around. Yes, exactly, exactly. It's lucky that someone thought to put bore water samples under a microscope at some point because these beetles, this stygofauna, they're completely different from the critters you might see on the surface. These beetles have lost a lot of the adaptations that they previously needed to live above ground. So obviously their ancestors would have also been aquatic, so they have a lot of adaptations to moving around in the water in kind of an aerodynamic way. But these beetles have also lost their wings, many have lost their eyes in some cases, and they've almost always lost their pigment. So they're essentially not see-through, but pale white. And if we do pull them out of the aquifers, they tend to turn a little yellow with the kind of preservation methods we use. But for the most part, they're almost entirely featureless. Why would you lose your pigment? Well, we assume that a lot of insects have pigment because they want to send some kind of message, whether that's to predators, to their prey, to potential mates. And so there's no real point in investing the energy into maintaining your pigment if no one can see anything in these environments. Hmm. And so do they have little paddles or anything on their limbs to help them zoom? Yeah, so they tend to have um, what we call little CT, which are tiny little hairs on their legs, and that enables them to really use them as um, oars, I suppose, um, to get around these spaces. So they can, they can swim extremely fast, despite the fact that they've lost a lot of the other adaptations that they would have used above ground millions of years ago. And how do they not boop into each other and or the rocks or anything else? Are they actually able to sense their environment? Um, Unfortunately for them, I do suspect that they probably boop into quite a lot of things. We don't understand much about how they sense the environment around them, so whether that's how they can smell the potential prey in the water, whether they have a sense of, of if something is in front of them. But based on observing them, pulling them out of the aquifer, I I kind of assume that they would be booping things. (laughs) I'm guessing that because they they live and have lived for millions of generations in this completely sealed off environment, that they don't really necessarily have, I don't know, do they have a circadian rhythm like we do because we respond to sunlight? That's a really good question. Um, that's just something that we don't know about these animals. We do know that other animals that live in complete darkness, such as um, some beautiful glowworm species that have been studied by David Merritt in Queensland, 
when they are completely sealed off with no external cues, um, say sunlight, to inform their circadian rhythm, they tend to do something called free running, which means that their circadian rhythm essentially goes kind of haywire, but eventually it syncs up into something that uses internal cues from the system to tell them when to wake up and when to rest. So I imagine that these beetles would have pretty similar biology, but we just haven't studied them enough to even know, for example, how long their adults even live. So was that that their rhythms might synchronise so that most individuals become active around the same times? Yeah, that's the kind of evidence we have from other animals that have transitioned to completely dark environments. Whether this is the case in the aquifers, though, uh, that would be a really interesting question to, to answer. A lot of these beetles lack eyes, but they do seem to have a response to light in that they will prefer darker environments if we subject them to behavioural experiments, for example. So we assume that they have some form of of sensing light as well, which I think would be just an added shock for them when we uh, pull them up in that fishing line. You mentioned prey, so they're hunters, are they? Yes, um, they're scavengers, so they will eat each other, as far as we know, but they will also eat other things in these aquifers, tiny crustaceans, for example, so relatives of what we would think of as slaters or kill bugs or roly-polies, and they really just eat as much as they can get. There's very little nutrient availability in these environments, particularly because it's a closed-off system. Are they numerous within these big aquifers? We assume that they are, just in the sense that when we collect them, we tend to find quite a few. But the real scope of what these environments look like, if you were actually able to somehow go underground and swim in them, we really don't know about. They could be, you know, so deep that you could very easily stand up in them and swim around in them, probably quite likely. But we just don't know about how numerous these beetles are. I would assume that they're quite numerous because they perform a really important role in these aquifers, which is actually acting as a caretaker for these environments. So these beetles essentially shuttle around water purifying bacteria, and that means that these environments actually stay pure with respect to the drinking water inside them. So just in that sense, I'm assuming that there'd be a lot of them, but we just don't know. Our lack of knowledge about the lives of these tiny underground diving beetles is mirrored by our lack of understanding of the environment that they live in. I think at the moment only about a third of the environments in WA have been explored. There's upwards of, I think, 200 aquifers in um, the Yilgarn region, for instance, and we just really don't know much about them at all. They're they're really uh, one of Australia's last, I suppose, unexplored frontiers. We tend to find in these aquifers that we'll pull up a new species every time we sample a new location. (laughs) They've just evolved in such isolation that there doesn't seem to have been any mixing of genetic material at all between these species. So that means lots and lots of speciation, tiny twigs on the tree of life responding to the genetic mix and the local conditions of isolated caverns beneath the earth. And buried beneath layers of sand and soil and rock, especially if we humans keep our diggers to ourselves, the aquifers remain in a relatively steady state. The aquifer temperatures are stable, but they do also tend to reflect the temperatures that we see above ground. And if we have a particularly warm period above ground, then we will see a bit of a a blip in the aquifer temperature as well. So while these environments are sealed off from the outside world, they're not entirely separate from them. 
We know that because these beetles have lived in such a stable environment for many millions of years, they probably can't tolerate the thermal extremes, not only um, that we experience above ground in terms of the, the temperatures of, say, the Yorgon region in WA, but also the temperatures that we expect to be observing in Australia under climate change in the next 100 years or so. So these beetles are really perfect systems for assessing how some of the most vulnerable animals in Australia might respond to these really extreme temperatures in the future. And it's entirely possible that um, some of them might just not survive. The aquifers in WA actually represent a portion of the largest source of groundwater on Earth in the form of these aquifers. They don't cover just a small area of Australia. They really represent a very large portion of potential drinking water, water that we could use for other activities such as mining. And the fact that these little beetles act as caretakers for these entire systems is really just, it blows my mind. Even though these are such unknown, understudied, tiny little animals that most people probably won't care about. They actually do maintain incredibly important environments in Australia and, and worldwide, and that we really do need to know more about them if we want to continue to conserve these aquifers. Hmm. Yeah, the irony being that as the climate changes, these aquifers are going to become more and more important. And the fact that the, fact that the regions that these beetles occur in are actually heavily utilised for mining activities is also not a very good thing. <laughs> It's funny to think that even though, you know, even a large one is the size of a grain of rice, how much biomass must be lurking around in those underground aquifers? Because I imagine that the scale of it might be quite big once you add it all together. Oh, absolutely. Beetles are certainly not the only occupants in these environments. And we really understand very little about the contribution of the other animals that live in these aquifers, how many there are, for example. We know that these environments tend to be dominated by small crustaceans, but there's really a, a deeper understanding of exactly what lives in these underground cave-like systems is, is really lacking. Wait, underground crustaceans like y yabbies? The real diversity in subterranean systems is invertebrates and particularly crustaceans. So it's really quite amazing. Dr Kim Abrams is a zoologist who works for the Department of Water and Environmental Regulation in Western Australia. And it's her job to assess and name the tiny creatures that live in these underground aquifers, like those crustaceans. Yes, yeah, so the family is Parabathanellidae. Um, they're another unusual group of animals that most people have probably never heard of, but they're quite amazing little animals. Do our Parabathanellidae... Oh, I got close. Do they have a nickname as well? Oh, unfortunately, they don't. So sometimes we just call them Parabaths. That's a bit easier to say. These ones, um, they're aquatic, so they're called stygofauna, which is the ones that live in the water underground. Um, and so depending on how deep the water is, they, they can definitely be quite deep under the ground, you know, up to probably 50 metres. Wow. That's pretty deep. <laughs> For a tiny little thing, yes. like because I'm, I'm assuming that almost all of this, all of the creatures that live in these environments are, are quite small, are they? And by that I mean under five mil. The parabaths are also very tiny. So generally, they could be less than a millimeter to three millimeters, 
The biggest one we know is six millimetres, and that one is much bigger than most of the ones we've seen. Oh, a giant at six millimetres compared to one. Yes, the giant is six mils. <laughs> yes. How would you describe a parabath? I would describe it as a tiny shrimp that's a bit more slender and worm-like. So they, they do look a bit like a shrimp, but they're very tiny and they have very beautiful legs with lots of sensory hairs on them. Well, I, I think they're, they're quite pretty, but I think some people think they just look like worms. <laughs> this whole group, they all live underground. The only ones that are not known from groundwater are in a very, very deep lake in Russia called Lake Baikal. So these ones are true, you know, they adapted to subterranean life a long time ago and all of them live deep under the ground. Sorry, I shouldn't say all of them live deep under the ground because there are some that live in under riverbeds and they're not that deep, but they're definitely, all of them have lost their eyes. They're completely adapted to living in groundwater. So they're very old, hundreds of millions of years old. They would have evolved in, you know, before the dinosaurs. We actually don't know a lot about them because we don't have any fossil record for this family. We think that their relatives are anaspidations, which we do have fossils for. And once they went underground, they were pretty much stuck there, but they seem to have made a good a good go of living underground. And once they went underground, they were pretty much stuck there, but they seem to have made a good, a good go of living underground. Um, and they seem to still be speciating under there. And in spite of the tough conditions, they seem to be having quite a good time, actually. Sometimes it's a bit overwhelming because anytime you go to a new area, you'll find new species. So we know that there are at least hundreds out there that we still need to describe. So Australia currently has the greatest diversity of aquatic diving beetles that's known in the world and the greatest diversity of schizomates right now. Um, we're still in the process of describing some of them, but we have a large portion. But I, I should say that over in, particularly in South America, they're finding a lot of new subterranean species too. So I think it, it's an interesting space to watch. There are these calcrete aquifers over in Western Australia that we know have very distinctive communities of species. And so there might be three species of diving beetles and a couple of species of parabats and some other things. And they're only found in that, that aquifer. And then if you go just a few kilometres away, you'll find another completely distinct community, which also has diving beetles and parabathnellids, but they're different species. But then in other places, particularly the ones that live closer to the surface and near to surface waters like rivers and streams, you do get a bit more connectivity and make them, they're a bit more widespread. How would you describe their movement? These ones, so they're quite cute little swimmers. They're quite zippy, so they swim through the, the water column, but they also sort of, sort of crawl over sand grains. So they can move fairly well, but they're quite tiny. So these ones also are not good at dispersing and 
pretty much, you know, if you go a few kilometres away or to a different aquifer, you, you tend to find a different species. So also very limited dispersal. And we think a lot of the crawling they, they have to do because it's how they stay in contact with their habitat and figure out where they're going. So we don't think that they swim freely very much because um, imagine if you have no eyes and you're just swimming along in a column of water, it would be difficult to know where you were and if you were going up or down. Yeah. So how is it that you think that they're sensing their environment? Well, these ones have um, a lot of sensory hairs on their antennae. Um, they have two pairs of antennae that they can use to sense the environment. And they also have a lot of these long sensory hairs, which are called CT, um, on their legs. So we think that most of what they're picking up from the environment is using these sensory hairs. What do parabaths eat? So most of them we think are grazes so we think that they sort of graze on biofilms and probably whatever organic matter comes in but they're not predators in general we do know of two species that have been found with um, the remains of other smaller crustaceans inside their gut contents so we know that there are a few that are predators but it seems to be very rare most of them are grazes you know browsing on whatever bits of vegetation or roots are in the water. The way this subterranean environment is, so there'll be the troglofauna, which are the air-breathing animals, but they're still subterranean, they're below the surface, but then there's a gap and then there's the water. So sometimes the things that are living above the water fall in and they provide food also to the, to the aquatic living animals. So could, could that be things like sprickets or they probably wouldn't make it down deep enough, would they? Oh, yeah, definitely. Oh, okay. Yes, yep. So things like sprickets, there are subterranean cockroaches. Um, there are other kinds of arachnids like pseudoscorpions, and we see quite a lot of diversity of them too. There are things like silverfish. So there, there's actually quite a lot of different little subterranean animals that have made their way underground. It's just so funny because, you know, I suppose as humans we like to rely on the solidity of the earth beneath our feet, but actually what's going on beneath our feet is so much more complicated. <laughs> it's amazing to think there's there's this whole world that's been, been there for millions of years that's just going about its business and doesn't know anything about us and for a long time we didn't know anything about them. So why is it important then to study them? They're like a time capsule. So often when we look at them, we're seeing, you know, the animals that lived there in the past, what used to be up on the surface. But of course, not everything managed to survive. We're seeing the ones who managed to change themselves to fit in their new environment. They're obviously so incredibly tough, but not at the same time. They're so delicate and they live in such a stable environment that any change to those environments, even though they're the toughest little nuts ever, can be pretty catastrophic? That's it. We, we, you know, we think just maybe adding too many nutrients would throw the whole system out of balance. Or mm. um, They're very vulnerable to, to changes, particularly drying and if we lose the rainfall, then they lose their organic matter going into the system. 
they they are adapted to living a long, slow life, so they can cope with with not having much to eat. But we don't know how they will respond to climate change, for example, if if they don't have these big rainfall events that recharge water and bring nutrients in. We don't know how, how well they'll survive those changes. Dr Kim Abrams and Dr Perry Beasley-Hall have been our field guides in this episode of Off Track, showing us around the subterranean habitat inhabited by invertebrates that lies beneath our feet. Really cool and really weird. (laughs) I'm Ann Jones and you've been listening to Off Track. They were so different to anything I'd ever thought about before. Remember to subscribe... I wish that we just had some x-ray goggles. Because I'm looking forward to talking to you next time. So we could look into these environments because they're just so precious but understudied at the same time. That's when I'll take you somewhere else. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.